I invite you now to open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. As we continue our verse-by-verse understanding of... Boy, today you really see coming out of chapter 6, just a very insightful epistle that the Lord has blessed us with contained here in the New Testament. I'm going to read the entire chapter. I think it's really helpful for us to do that coming out of chapter 6 and to really set the context, the theme of what's going on in chapter 7. And I'm going to endeavor today uh, in many ways do, I think, what it is. It's more of an of a introductory message into chapter 7 because it focuses so much on this person, Melchizedek, But Melchizedek, uh, to be very clear, is not the main theme of this entire chapter, but it is an important one. And that's why today, in the first message of chapter 7, we're going to spend so much time on him. So let's read uh, together, or look together rather, chapter 7. Hear the word of the Lord. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all first being by interpretation king of righteousness and after that also king of Salem which is king of peace without father without mother without descent having neither beginning of days nor end of life but made like unto the son of God abideth a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. And barely they that are the sons of Levi, who receive the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they came out of the loins of Abraham. But he, this is Melchizedek, whose descent is not counted from them, received tithes of Abraham and blessed him, that is, blessed Abraham, that had the promises. And without all contradiction, the less, Abraham, is blessed of the better, Melchizedek. And here men that die receive tithes, but there he receiveth them, of whom it is witness that he liveth. And as I may so say, Levi also who receiveth tithes paid tithes in Abraham, for he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. If therefore perfection were made by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should arise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron, or that is the Levitical priesthood? Verse 12, For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe, that is Melchizedek, of which no man gave attendance or ordination at the altar. 
For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning the priesthood. And it is yet far more evident for that after the similitude, likeness of Melchizedek, there ariseth another priest who is made not after the law of the carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. For he testifieth, referring to Psalms 110.4 here, quoting it verbatim, for he testifieth, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and the unprofitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. And inasmuch as not without an oath, he was made priest. For those priests, referring to the Levitical priests, were made without an oath, but this with an oath by him that said unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament or covenant. And they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. They would die. But this man... This Messiah, this Jesus, verse 24, because he continueth ever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. For such a high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins, and then for the people's. For this he did once, when he offered up himself. For the law maketh men high priests, which have infirmity. But the word of the oath, which was since the law, maketh the Son, who is consecrated for evermore. And may the Lord bless His amazing Word. Wow! Come out of chapter 6, we wonder if it could get any better. And it certainly does in chapter 7. As part of my introduction here, I want to draw your attention to Hebrews 5, 12-4. Just turn your Bible back there a page or so. This is, I want to start the introduction with this. Beginning with verse 12, the text says, For when the time you ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, For he is a babe, but strong meat belongs to them that are of full age, 
even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. I am convinced that over the centuries, the church of Jesus Christ has been sold a bill of goods that goes something like this. Lay people in the church can't withstand deep theological teachings. Or sometimes it's expressed this way. Your common church goers don't really care about the details of theology. They only want what is relevant and practical applications that affect their lives about theology. Beloved, in light of verses 12 through 14, and as we're entering into chapter 7, I would present to you that this sort of philosophy has persisted to the degree that many ministers today are reluctant to serve meat at the Lord's Day festival, which is centered around His Word and the truth of His Word, and subsequently the very thing the people of God need to positively affect their daily lives is withdrawn from them, which is contributing then unavoidable spiritual malnutrition. This isn't without consequences. Because as a result, the church has been conditioned to abhor meat, good, solid teaching. They've come to abhor the meat of the faith and be content with milk. And thus it's not surprising that we find ourselves in the state affairs that we do today where many of the major Protestant denominations in this land have to have prolonged deliberations, prolonged two-year committees to determine if open or secretly self-identifying homosexuals are to be ordained as ministers or that women ought to be ordained as ministers in the local churches to lead the local churches. This ought to be surprising to us. For far too long we have allowed ourselves as the living church of God to become content with shallow theology, tribal traditions, and in many respects we have become unable to rightly defend the faith that was once and for all delivered unto the saints. We have been content with being babies. Possessing a very keen awareness of the great need of having one's mind matured, having one's uh, ability spiritually to go from milk unto meat by the understanding of the Word of God, and especially how that Word, all of that Word, points us to the glory of God in Christ, the inspired writer of Hebrews in chapter 7 now returns back to a very particular point of theological truth regarding Jesus, which is foundational to the perseverance of their faith, which he's exhorting them to do. You remember he alluded to this in chapter 5. He wanted to begin to teach it. This doctrine of the likeness or the similitude of Melchizedek with the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the King Priest Messiah, But he stopped himself and he said, verses, the end of chapter 5, all through chapter 6, halfway, that I'm concerned whether you're even going to be able to receive it because you've allowed yourself to abhor the meat and you're content with the milk. Well, inspired by God's blessed spirit, he now comes back to the truth. 
pastorally, he must have come to a place of saying, I can't skip over this. Why? Because what I'm exhorting him to do, this is an integral piece of the puzzle that has to be put in place, this connection of the theology of Melchizedek with Christ for them to grasp, for me to walk through with them as it will aid them and equip them to do what I'm exhorting them to do. Hold tight to the profession and the confession of your faith in Christ in Christ alone. That theological truth simply stated, which is the real theme of chapter 7, is this. Jesus is the eternally covenanted, oath-bound high priest and king, which then sets up chapter 8, that as a supreme high priest and king, the covenant, the oath-bound covenant that he mediates is to be regarded as superior to all the former covenant arrangements in any way, shape, and form. And so by returning to the meat of the faith, the writer's demonstrating his confidence in something. I want you to see this. He's demonstrating a confidence that we as the church of Christ today must also come back to cultivate and maintain, which is this. From 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. All Scripture is breathed out for God. It's profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, for the training in righteousness, that the man of God, the people of God, you can rightly say, may be competent, may be competent and equipped for every good work. I told my wife last night at dinner, I said, boy, I, you know, chapter 7 is a little technical, it's a little, you know, uh, dry, I guess you say, in, in a way, but it's profitable. And it definitely was seen profitable in the contours of what this minister, this pastor, and this epistle is wanting to convey to these people so that they would endure, right? And so therefore, we ought to see it that way or not. Because I'm sure, maybe some of you guys, not this audience, but perhaps some would look at those sermon notes and go, oh wow, we're buckle up, you know, we're in a train ride. Who, this, this, this person, Melchizedek. All of it's profitable, beloved. All of it's good for us. We have to... Uh, begin to, 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 to cultivate this desire for meat in God's Word so that we can be competent, competent people of God. Chapter 5, you're, you're there. Perhaps you've turned the page and you got back to our text. But look again in verse 6, 10, and 11. He, he wanted to teach them this, this doctrine of Melchizedek, especially in its connection with the eternal covenant and Christ. He said in verse 6, as he saith also in another place, citing Psalms 110 verse 4, still part of my introduction here, thou art a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then in verses 10 and 11, he connects Christ and Melchizedek again. He says, uh, called of God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, of whom, unclear who he's talking about here in verse 11, chapter 5, could be Melchizedek, could be Christ in connection with Melchizedek, but the point still remains the same. He says, of whom we have many things to say, and hard, uh-oh, there's the meat, to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. Seeing that ye are content with just milk, or if you allowed yourself to be content with milk. But he wants to teach that, doesn't he? And so now he comes here to chapter 7. I think it's important that we note that when you really look at the overall structure of Hebrews, starting with chapter 6, Verse 13, the writer begins to carefully craft an argument which this 
doctrine of Melchizedek is part of. And when thoughtfully studied, it reveals to us as Christians some of the deepest mysteries of all of creation. And it's namely this, that the eternal begotten Son through whom all things were created, chapter 1 and 2, had, we learned last week, or the week before, we learned that through an eternal covenant oath, He voluntarily committed Himself to redeem and rescue fallen sons of men for the purpose of revealing His grace, mercy, and His glory. This purpose of the eternal covenant oath is what is revealed in all of Scripture. The Scriptures are a historical narrative of this glorious covenant lived out in the theater of creation. And beginning in Genesis 3.15, all the way to the end of the Scriptures, along the way, the Lord is, in a way, giving key aspects, key insights, significant clues of this eternal covenant oath narrative that's being displayed in creation. One such insight we explored in chapter 6 was the person and the great patriarch of Abraham. Do you remember that? Abraham's entire life on the theater of creation was for the sole purpose to teach us something of the eternal purpose and oath of God in revealing His mercy, His grace, and His glory. It's the whole purpose of Abraham's existence. Stand back and think for a moment. It's the whole purpose of your existence. In this place, this stage that we call creation. Today we are reintroduced to another clue, another step, from redemptive history that God has provided and, we're going to see in a moment, was regularly employed in the life of the Jews for the purpose of revealing and pointing all creation to His purpose and His covenantal plan. The clue of which I speak is the figure the Scriptures identify as Melchizedek. So much for the introduction. So it's important for us to study Melchizedek. Just like it was important for us to study the promises made to Abraham. And how they work to show us and are connected to the eternal covenant promises that are intended to reveal the mercy, the glory, the grace of our triune God. So how are we going to unpack chapter 7? Well, I propose to you today, like I said... Verses 1 through 10 are really more of an introductory sermon or message to chapter 7 because I'm focusing so much on Melchizedek. And I propose to you that we today consider verses 1 through 10 together by the identification of Melchizedek. And then secondly, ask a question, how does Melchizedek reveal the purpose and promise of the eternal oath-bound covenant? And then thirdly, how the doctrine of Melchizedek helps us as Christians. So let us begin, if you've never looked into it, what I found out in my studies to be a real roller coaster of a ride with attempting to identify Melchizedek, as you see in your sermon notes, the identification of Melchizedek. Well, the identification of Melchizedek is admittedly by all theologians not an easy, not a straightforward, 
Not a simple answer. And this is largely due to the fact that there is so little recorded in the Scriptures or elsewhere in extant writings about him from anyone to be or to hold an overtly dogmatic position. His identity, I believe, is certainly surrounded with the level of acceptable mystery which ought to cause all interpretations of who Melchizedek is to be held with a level of humility. Now, admitting this, the difficulty of identifying him, we must nonetheless, brothers and sisters, endeavor to rightly divide and handle the Word of God, amen, and seek to learn why Melchizedek is in the sacred scriptures and what his role is in pointing us and pointing all of creation to the glory, the mercy, and the covenant of God. To begin so, as you see in your notes, let's first consider where, when we are first introduced to this significant clue, this significant clue, this figure named Melchizedek. Well, we're first introduced to him in Genesis, 4, Genesis 14. That's where he's first brought to our attention. And it's in that historical context that we learn of the four mighty kings who came against and conquered the kingdoms of Sodom and the kingdom of Gomorrah and in doing so, this confederacy of kings, they destroyed all of their villages, they carried away all of their plunder, all of their goods, and they carried away their people. Their people included, you know the narrative, perhaps Abraham's nephew Lot and Lot's family. Now in response to this, recorded in Genesis 14, Abraham, the text says, armed his trained servants. Just Side application here, there is such a thing as a just war. There is such a thing as a just battle. I think this is evident of that. Abraham arms his trained servants. And in fact, 318 of his servants, to be exact, went at night with Abraham and they defeated the confederacy of those kings who kidnapped his nephew and the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's all contained in verses 1 through 16 of Genesis 14. Then we come in Genesis 14 to verse 17 to 24. And there's recorded this small account of Abraham's interaction with this individual identified with the name Melchizedek, which the writer of Hebrews is referencing today, obviously. And that's it. That's all we got. There's absolutely nothing else in Scripture that explains his identity. The only other place his name is ever mentioned in Scripture, all of Scripture, is Psalms 110, verse 4, the inspired prophet David. That psalm, interestingly, is a description of the messianic nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. No one contends that. His messianic nature is both priest and king. It's the only other time we have anything said of Melchizedek. So, who is Melchizedek? This person that is so significant that in the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is going to use as a pivotal point to make of how Jesus Christ has a superior priesthood, i.e. a superior covenant administration um, than the Levitical priesthood. Who is this guy Melchizedek? Well, throughout history, various interpretations have been provided. Some have suggested that he was more than a man, that he was perhaps an angel. Some have suggested that he was the Holy Spirit. And others, 
I think is a little bit more plausible, but still not convinced of it, that he was Shem, Noah's son, or one of Shem's close, closest descendants, one of Shem's sons. Others, which is the most predominant view amongst the Christian church, is that he was the pre-incarnate Christ, that he was what we call in theology a Christophany. He appeared, it's Christ pre-incarnate, coming into creation as a man in the form of a king of a real place called Salem in order to do this Genesis 14 verses 17 to 24 administration of a blessing and they go from there. Many contend. There are some good points, beloved. Like I said in my introduction, I think everyone has to hold these positions to a certain level of humility, not be overtly dogmatic about it, because in Hebrews 7, that's not the ultimate thrust and theme of this, but it's a significant point. That's why we've got to rightly divide the word. Um, Some contend that going into Genesis 15, that it's Melchizedek interacting with Abraham, a real man. Some good valid points in their argument, I think. However, to begin to answer this question of identifying Melchizedek, let us be faithful Bereans and really handle the word and come to what we can consider a right interpretation of the text. And to do so, as you see in your notes, I want us to consider positive and negative demands that the data the text gives us before we form any conclusions. In other words, what does the text demand of us and what doesn't the text demand of us? What does it positively and negatively what doesn't it demand? Let's do the negative first in your sermon notes. What the text doesn't demand of us. The text we've just talked about in Genesis 14, also in Psalms 110.4 and here in Hebrews, I present to you does not demand any interpretation which requires us to accept that he was anything more than a righteous priest and king of a real literal kingdom called Salem within the Mesopotamia region. There is nothing said of Melchizedek which proves him to be anything more than a real man. So there, I've showed all my cards on the table. That's what I'm advocating for after I've studied this. Now, obviously, there's going to be some objections to this. And perhaps you even saw it in the text. He is, he is referred to as the King of Righteousness, capital K. He is the King of Peace. Well, who else, beloved, is called the King of Peace? Who else is called the King of Righteousness? Who else is eternal, without mother, without father? Well, it's only the one true Christ. And so there is things here that do cause some objections that I want to walk down through with you to help you to see the proper identification of Melchizedek. Let's first look at his name. The first objection someone will say is, well, his name means king of righteousness. Literally, in Hebrew, it's translated that. At this point, um, John Gill really helped me to see something that I want to share with you. John Gill's familiarity uh, with ancient Jewish writings offered some clarity here. He said in his studies of this issue, that Jewish writers, ancient Jewish writers, claimed that it was not unusual for the kings of this area to name themselves Melchizedek or another name, Adonizedek, which is translated in Hebrew, my Lord is righteous. Well, is this in Scripture? I believe I gave it to you in your sermon notes. 
in Joshua 10, verses 1 and verses 3, we have instances where kings in Jerusalem, which Jerusalem is built upon, we'll see in a moment, ancient Salem. You had Salem there at the time of Melchizedek. Time goes on, civilizations come, conquer, you know. And then you have Jerusalem being built on the same foundations called Jerusalem. It was typical, Gil found, that the ancient kings in those places would identify themselves with these names. Lord of Righteousness. King of Righteousness. And if you do any kind of research with the Canaanite kings, the pagan kings, they love to give themselves kind of names of, of deity and things like that. So I think it's very, very plausible to look at this and say his name doesn't demand negatively. Remember, the text doesn't demand. His name doesn't demand that we, we equate that he is Jesus Christ, a Christophany. No, because there was others who gave them name, similar names, Adonizedek, etc., so it's in this light, Melchizedek's name doesn't demand, I present that he was a pre-incarnate, or he was the pre-incarnate King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. But there's a, another objection. What about his title that we see in Hebrews chapter 7? He is called the King of Peace. Well, that's given to him because of the kingdom in which he was governing, he was ruling over as both a king and a priest. That kingdom's name was, in the text, Salem. There's a little bit of debate about this ancient city, but I'm going to rest on the Holy Spirit's trustworthiness, amen, here in Hebrews 7, that it says he was the king of Salem. Okay? So he was a king of Salem. And that is interpreted peace. The king of Salem, which was the location, as I said to you, later Jerusalem would be constructed upon, requires us only in the text that we acknowledge that under his reign, as its king, and with respects to his peaceful government, that kingdom, Salem, would have been known for peace. It wasn't a warlord kingdom. It wasn't uh, identified with the other pagan nations where there was no moral law of God acting as a righteous restraint to the hearts and the lust of men. No, because Melchizedek, a king of righteousness, he governed his kingdom in peace. So the text identifying him as a king of peace doesn't necessitate and demand of us to say that he was the king of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. Objection number three that many will bring up, and I think it's a good one to consider, and you have to work these things out. His genealogical record is not recorded. Is not recorded. Here's what, I, after my studies, I landed on this. The lack of Melchizedek's genealogy doesn't demand, it doesn't necessitate that we interpret it as being, or him being eternal. It could be interpreted, beloved, that he is as a Canaanite king-priest in his genealogy, not considered as important to the redemptive narrative that comes to us and is followed through Abraham's descendants. And additionally, his appearance, without giving his genealogy, because he's not connected to the genealogy of Abraham, through whom the seed that will crush the skull of the serpent will come, by not giving his a genealogy, the Lord has given us a significant likeness, a significant clue of the priesthood 
of Jesus Christ, which the writer of Hebrews in chapter 7 is using today. So what I'm getting at there is I believe that his lack of genealogy given in the book of Genesis is twofold. He's not connected to the covenant line of Abraham, which is the significant thread and narrative of revealing the grand and glorious purposes of the covenant with God. And secondly, is purposely not given so that he could be used by the inspired King David and be used by the inspired writer of Hebrews to be a likeness, a model, a shadow that they could point to. Well, one last further observation of what the text doesn't demand. Notice that the scriptural record of Melchizedek, either in Genesis 14, his interaction there that day with Abraham, or his mentioning in Psalms 110 verse 4, or what we see here in Hebrews 7, which Hebrews 7 is just simply renunciating what was recorded in the historical book of Genesis chapter 14. None of it designates any attributes... I think this is significant to Melchizedek that are divine. And in any situation where we see in those texts, Melchizedek does not receive the worship of himself. I think that that's significant. That's significant. Well, the text negatively doesn't demand certain conclusions. Could definitely crack the door. Could definitely and many expound on these things. And they contend that this is a Christophany. I admit it cracks the door, but it doesn't demand it. Hence, you've got to have some humility about this. But there is some things that the text positively does demand. Let's look at that now. The text does demand that we recognize Melchizedek as much, much more than any ordinary man. And this is made, I believe, abundantly clear from the text witness of Abraham's response to him and Melchizedek's actions toward Abraham as he blesses him. You see in uh, chapter 7 of our text today, this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed Abraham. Well, Abraham's the one that the writer of Hebrews says is the one who had the promises, but he's being blessed by Melchizedek, to whom also we see in verse 2, Abraham gave a tenth, part of all the spoils, later on the text says, first being by interpretation king of righteousness and after that also the king of peace. And so whatever we, we want to make of Melchizedek, we, the text does demand that we recognize him as much more than just any ordinary guy. We see that the text clearly is identifying Melchizedek as a priest of the most high God. Now just push the pause button real quick. This is in Genesis 14. The writer of Hebrews, we just read in chapter 7, the whole chapter, is building a case here and emphasizing the point that the Levitical priesthood was still in the loins of Abraham. Has not even come into the historical scene yet. But here we have a Canaanite king-priest who's a priest of the Most High God. So definitely this is an individual that the text does demand we pay close attention to. And from this, we gather in that historical timeline I just alluded to, that since the time of the flood in Genesis chapter 14, 
There's been about four to 500 years that have passed. And while the vast majority of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, have descended and abandoned the one true faith that was communicated to them through Noah in exchange for the Canaanite idols and the Canaanite polytheism, there is this Canaanite man, this righteous man, who is not only a king of a kingdom known for its equity of peace, but he's also described as a priest of the Most High God. The text does demand that we recognize something is special about Melchizedek. In Genesis chapter 14, 18, I don't think I put this in your notes, the text says, when Melchizedek meets Abraham, covered perhaps, I'm using my sanctified imagination here, in blood, him and 318 men just put a whipping on four warlords who just took captive and destroyed the cities and the kingdoms of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham comes from that battle. And the thing that Melchizedek does, it says, Blessed be ye Abram of the Most High God, possessor in the authorized version, could be translated creator of heaven and earth. So this individual Melchizedek, long before the establishment of any um, Mosaic Covenant, the development of the narrative and the nation that's going to bring the seed of the woman. We have in redemptive history this Canaanite man who comes out of his kingdom of peace where he's ruling it in righteousness and he looks at blood-soaked Abram. He says, Bless be Abram of the Most High God, the Creator of all heaven and earth. Melchizedek, beloved, you see here in this text, was a worshiper and a priest of what the Hebrew says, Most High God, El, the El, Most High God. This is significant because it expands our understanding, I think, and our application of those during this time in history that still believed in, and they still worshiped God as the singular supreme being and creator over everything that existed, which Noah worshiped. And Noah was warning the judgment from whose, whose judgment seat the whole world would be destroyed. I want to give you something that's of great interest, I think, at this point as we're recognizing Melchizedek had attributes that the text does demand we appreciate. In 1920s, in the, during the 1920s, uh, I think it was 1927, 1928, I discovered that Archaeologists found in a place that's identified as Raz Shama, which turned out to be the ancient city of Ugarit, hundreds of thousands of tablets from this time period. They range from 2000 BC, which is about the time Abraham's having this interaction with Melchizedek, unto about the pinnacle of their civilization, the Can this Canaanite civilization, in the year 1200. That would be the 12th century BC. The archaeologists discovered these, and what they gathered when they looked at them and they concluded from them was that there was, during their history of a civilization, not an evolution in their progress of the gods that they worshipped, but as if it were there was a devolution. There was a, a downgrading that ended up in their polytheism that eventually we see is the backdrop of all of the Old Testament 
that Joshua and everyone's called in to conquer. But before that, in the year 2000, there were many that were still, even in the Canaanite realm, worshiping the one true creator God. They did not, they would not have known him as a covenant God, Yahweh, such as the ancient people through the line of Abraham would have known. God did not reveal himself in a personal way that way. But we see that Melchizedek is from this population of people during this time who with Job before Abraham was worshiping the one true creator God, the supreme being of all heaven and all earth. And so when Abram comes out of the battle, he knows this individual as the one who represents his God. He knows this individual is the one who loves the one true living God, upholds his law, and because we're in Genesis 14, just a few chapters earlier, Genesis 12, Abraham was one of those pagans out there wandering in the dark and had abandoned the one true God. And then God did what? The one true, the El, the Elohim, we would say, comes and he makes himself known to Abram. And Abram now knows God. And he knows just like you and I know one another as worshipers of the one true God in the new covenant through his son, Jesus Christ. With that in context, all of that, it we see in the text pays Melchizedek a great honor to be called a priest of the Most High God. And here's why. Melchizedek, as chapter 7 in Hebrews is telling us, he wasn't appointed a priest by carnal men. He was appointed a priest and a king by God himself of the Most High God. Why is that significant? Because in likeness, doesn't equate exactness, but in likeness, in the eternal covenant arrangement, the Father to His begotten Son, i.e. Psalms 110 verse 4, tells Him, I will make you a victorious king. And in the day of your power, the nations will bow. In your priesthood, Psalms 110, people know, is divided up into two sections. The first half, verses 1 through 3, is talking about the declaration that he shall be a king. The second half is talking about the uh, covenant oath and covenant promise that existed between the Father and Son, that he shall be a priest. So Melchizedek, the text does demand, positively would recognize He was significant in God's eternal redemptive purposes and plans to be used to help future generations of Abraham's descendants to understand that someday, someday, God has promised to send us a king and a priest who was ordained and invoked with the power and the authority of himself to deliver us from our enemies and take away our sins forever. And that was in a shadowy sense, what they constantly were pointing toward. But also, Melchizedek, the text does demand that we recognize he was righteous. I've alluded to that. 
As we noted earlier, it's not uncommon during this time for the kings to apply themselves the name Melchizedek or Adonizedek. However, it is noticeable that he's described as a man who is righteous. His name does mean that. Meaning that he reverenced and loved the moral law of God as it's written upon the heart of every man. And remember, at this point of history, the moral law wasn't written upon the Ten Commandments of Mount Sinai, but we know from Romans 5, it's written on, by natural law, the heart. And while Melchizedek's Canaanite countrymen, why the vast, while the vast majority of his Canaanite peers and kings were de-evolving into polytheism, Melchizedek remained true, Melchizedek remained separate, Melchizedek remained righteous. The text does demand that we recognize his separate righteousness from the backdrop that him and Abram and Job and everyone else during that time period were surrounded by. The text does demand that we recognize, as Hebrews 7 is pointing out, that Abraham paid a tithe unto Melchizedek. For Abraham to recognize the authority and the authenticity of a Canaanite priest king has no other parallel in all of Scripture. So Melchizedek is significant in that sense. The text does demand that we recognize that. But from this, this is important, It would be wrong for us to conclude as Abram comes and he brings this tithe, not of Abram's goods, not of Lot's goods, it was the excess, the spoils of the defeated kings. He takes that and he gives it to Melchizedek as a tithe. It would be wrong for us to some way or another interpret this as Abraham worshiping Melchizedek, i.e., The force of that argument would be, see, he was a Christophany. That tithe is an act of worship. No, no, no. I believe Gil, once again, is helpful here. It was simply Abram recognizing the authority of the one true living God who made himself known to Abram as being represented by Melchizedek as a high priest of the Most High God. Perhaps, this is a little speculation, Melchizedek had a reputation. Abram knew of that reputation. I think it would be naive to think Abram didn't know about Salem and Abram didn't know about Melchizedek, okay? But he sees him and he sees him what he represented. What he represented was the true God, Abram's God. And so, Gil says, Abraham testified his gratitude to the one true God for the victory that he obtained and his reverence of and subjection to God's priest, Melchizedek, as he pays the tithe. Again, the data from the text does positively demand that we make much of Melchizedek in our theology. But moving on in your summer notes, it's not likely at this point, I'm convinced, he was a Christophany. And here's my two final reasons why I don't believe Melchizedek was a Christophany. The first is a textual reason, and the second is a logical reason. For those who still wish to interpret Hebrews 7 as being a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, consider with me first this textual reasoning that makes it unlikely, our wrong interpretation. Look at verse 3 in chapter 7. Without father, without mother, speaking of Melchizedek, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Many are saying, see, right there, that's, that's, that's Jesus. He's describing someone who's eternal. It says, semicolon, but made like 
unto the Son of God abideth a priest continually. That's in the original. That's a literal translation. This word, that's, this phrase rather, made like in the Greek, literally means a model. So read that again that way. This Melchizedek without a father, without mother, without a sin, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, is a model unto the Son of God. And he abideth a priest continually. You see, that's why I'm alluding to the fact that because of his, um, um, his, his, his lineage not being through Abraham was one reason why I think it doesn't demand we pay that much attention to his genealogical record, but also to the fact that the Lord wanted to purposefully hide it so that he could be used later on as a model, as a type to help understanding and to help the church grow in their uh, understanding of the significance of who Jesus the Messiah was. That is the eternal begotten son who was promised to be through the covenant of the father and the son, both a king and a priest. That's why his genealogical record was hidden. But there's another textual reason. Look at verse 15. The same point comes up again in verse 15. He's building this case, this idea that the priests have not always came, always have come through the Levitical priesthood, which is confined to the old covenant system, mosaic system. He's building that case. That's the point he's making, which we'll unpack next week. Verse 14 and 15, he says, it's evident, isn't it evident in this case I'm presenting to you that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning the priesthood? He's not from the Levitical priesthood. And yet it is far evident for that after the similitude of Melchizedek, literally in the Greek, that phrase, that word, the similitude means the likeness. Not the exactness, but the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest. And we'll connect really the main themes of this chapter next week, dealing more with the articulation of the differences between the old covenant system and the new covenant. So for these two reasons, beloved, they were significant for me, textually speaking, why it doesn't demand its Christophany. But lastly, the logical reason, consider this. If we as Bible believers, I hope we all are Bible believers in here. We don't think the Bible is just a, a, you know, a compilation of fairy tales and mythological ancient stories. If we hold that the Scriptures are actual literal history, Consider with me, and this is what did it for me. After the meeting, the real meeting that's recorded in Genesis 14, I read one, one guy, he went way too far on this. He was actually trying to present Genesis 14 as allegorical. A meeting between the father, the son, and the devil. The, 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 uh, the king of Sodom that was left the, by default, the first one was slaughtered in the takeover. There was one default. He was trying to paint, beloved, that's a literal event that happened in the Bible, okay? Um, if we believe that this is a literal event, think logically with me here, and you want to contend that Melchizedek was a Christophany, so he comes in the audience of Lot, we know, of Lot being there, of the king, the default king of Sodom, who was asking for the people back in, in Genesis 14, and Melchizedek, who the text and the, the writer of Hebrews is identifying as being a real king from an, a city. What happens to this Christophany in the form of Melchizedek after the meeting? Does he pack up his camels and go back to Salem 
for a reign of another five years, ten years. You see, you've got a problem with that. I, I, can't, I can't buy that. Uh, if, I mean, if you want to go down that road, that, yeah, the Christophany, you see, you've you got some real problems with, with contending logically that Melchizedek was a Christophany because Melchizedek has to go home someday after this meeting. You either accept it all as allegorical or you have to abandon the, the concept that this was a Christophany because of, the, I think, that one point that Melchizedek had to go back to his kingdom. So, the identity of Melchizedek, before we move on briefly to the last two points, we would be faithful, beloved, as going only as far as the text allows us in our identification of Melchizedek and conclude that he was a real and very unique person who God uses in redemptive history to reveal God's covenant purposes and promises in the Messiah. This moves us into our second heading. How then does Melchizedek reveal the purpose and the promise of the covenant? This was his role in history. This is the only reason why he's recorded in Scripture. Well, he was given, as your notes uh, shows us first of all, of how the greater versus the lesser priesthood is to be understood in this transition of the Old Covenant and the inauguration into the New Covenant. In our text today of chapter 7, verses 4 through 10, our text presents Melchizedek specifically as demonstrating that while the Levitical priest, which were at the time of Genesis 14 only in the loins of Abraham, were indeed needed for a period of time in redemptive history, the Levitical priesthood were not in and of themselves an end. They weren't a means unto an end. They were inferior. We'll get into that next week. So Melchizedek is important for at least that aspect in redemptive history. As we're seeking, why is he even on the scene? The Levitical priest represented something inferior. They represented something less. Melchizedek helps to see that. Melchizedek helps to illustrate that. That's how he helps reveal the eternal purposes and plan of God in the covenant. Specifically, the Levitical priesthood represented what was a covenant arrangement that could not permanently deal with the problem of sin, guilt, and condemnation. We'll look at that next week. That's what they represented. They were less. They could not, keyword, permanently deal. They could temporarily deal with it, that old covenant arrangement, every year, annually. But there's another way Melchizedek helps reveal the purpose and promise of the covenant. Melchizedek served as a type or a figure of the king, priest, Messiah. You've already picked up on that as I went through his identification. Melchizedek, as we will learn more about in verses 11 and 18, represented or rather modeled, remember the similitude and the likeness, in a figurative way, the promised king, priest, Messiah. The inspired New Testament writer to the Hebrew Christians wasn't the only one who recognized this helpful clue, this significant way that Melchizedek pointed and revealed the promise and the purpose of the covenant. King David, we saw in Psalms 110 verse 4, picked up on this. And this, I believe, King David's use of Melchizedek, demonstrates for us it was commonplace among the elect Jews prior to Christ to have understood the significant role Melchizedek played in revealing the purpose and the promise of God in His eternal covenant that He had revealed. But, lastly... We want to know, how does the doctrine of Melchizedek help us as Christians? Well, consider 
the aspect of as I painted that historical backdrop of him being a priest of the one true living God in the midst of the dark declining only 400 years after the flood of all of civilization into the dark polytheism that engrossed all of Mesopotamia. He was a royal priesthood. He was a royal priesthood. He represented a royal priesthood. We find in a proper, I believe, identification of Melchizedek a great help to us as Christians. The scriptural data that we consider today regarding Melchizedek ought to embolden you, Christian, to believe and then to act as what you are identified by the Apostle Peter of being in 1 Peter 2.9, and that is a royal priesthood. The parallels between Melchizedek's time and our own are astonishing. Would you agree? Polytheism in the West is at an all-time high. Marvel and Universal Hollywood Studios are making millions on glamorizing the ancient deities of past conquered gods and civilizations. It's all polytheism. Desensitizing us to it. We want to be like it. Make ourselves God. Professing Christians are beginning to reinterpret God and recreate a Christ that is altogether different from the Messiah, Jesus, in the Bible. Who of us today will be a Melchizedek? Who of us today will stand for God's righteousness in the tidal wave of lies and deceptions? How is Melchizedek relevant to Christians? An imminent example of separating and taking a stand for truth. Also, the whole interaction between Melchizedek and Abraham is a beautiful representation of how our high priest, which is Hebrews chapter 7, we will conclude next week as we unpack it, Hebrews chapter 7 is pointing to Melchizedek to help us look past him to the true high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we look at the interaction between Melchizedek and Abram in Genesis 14, we find encouragement that our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, He is faithful. And as we sung our first hymn in the morning, He is to be praised. That's how Melchizedek, beloved, after all of that technical argumentation, objections, and, 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 and dissecting of an argument, that's how it applies. Jesus Christ is our high priest. The account of Melchizedek blessing Abraham after his legitimate battle against evil provides us, does it not, a beautiful picture a beautiful example of how our Lord, our precious anointed Lord Jesus Christ, He is faithful during our times of suffering, during our times of weariness, during our times of being engaged in battle, having uh, uh, afflicted wounds, etc. He is faithful. He is there to minister to us. We didn't take the time, but in Genesis 14, it's significant, I believe, in the argumentations of some, uh, that Melchizedek brought bread and wine. It specifically mentions bread and wine. 
Wow, why is that? Do you not believe that the one true living God orchestrated that through His providence to show us the shadow and the type as you and I are here today? I am not asking for a show of hands, but I would like to see a show of hands of someone who could raise their hand and say, you know what? I haven't had one trial this week. I haven't had one affliction this week. I haven't had one continual lengthy valley that I've been in for a season of my life. Oh, but praise be to Jesus Christ, our great higher priest, much more than Melchizedek, is going to minister to you and I as we come in here soaked in the blood of our own iniquities at times that have been committed this week, soaked in the blood and the scars of those who have lashed out and mocked against us, the sorcerer that we read about in Acts 13, and we're coming into here and we're about to quiet our hearts and we're about to be reminded of the fact through the bread and through the cup, what beloved, that our high priest is faithful. He is faithful. Praise be to His holy name. Yes, Melchizedek has much to offer the Christian. Going back to my introduction, would you have seen that built up of the application of Melchizedek and your role as a royal priesthood if we, for, if we forsook all of the identification? No, you wouldn't have. You see, you had to get the backdrop, you had to get the meat to say, yes, the Most High God helped him. The Most High God will help me. Let's not abhor the meat. And yes, pastors can get long-winded sometimes. But beloved, as long as the meat's being brought to feed on, understand it helps make you strong. It helps you see the glorious amplification of our King and our Priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews 4. Just a couple pages over. We're going to end with this reading of Scripture. Looking past Melchizedek, Looking unto the one true and only King of kings, Lord of lords, the great eminent supreme high priest, our Lord Jesus Christ, the word of God, the word of the living God says, we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us pray. Holy Father, we bow before you and we thank you, O God. Oh, we thank you for illuminating your word, helping us to see of its significant portrayal of all of human history. What a delight, Lord, it is to go back and to consider as the text in Hebrews 7 forces us to do today, to a point of history where shortly after the great cataclysmic judgment of all of the earth, man in the worshiping of his own self and his own idols had begun to fall into darkness and decadence. And how we see in this mysterious figure that the text identifies as Melchizedek, an imminent example of, O Lord of your people in the midst of a dark and a corrupt world, being as if it were salt and light. And how we see, O God, the 
uh, ministering of Melchizedek to Abram, the weary servant of you who was being faithful and obedient in your calling in his life. And what an example, we never even touched upon it, but how it is an example for us to uh, minister to one another in the body of Christ. Thank you, O God. Thank you for the reality that, Lord, we exist in, that you are the, the triune God that has created, that does providentially control and govern all of history. And you, Lord, in your wisdom, you, you brought Melchizedek into the, the narrative of history for us to look at and draw and to glean these precious truths as it reflects in a similitude and a likeness the one true King Priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to praise Him more. Help us to worship our Christ ever so more. We are weak. We confess to You, O God, Lord, all of our frailties, and we ask You to embolden and encourage our faith as we approach the remembrance of what Christ has done for us, paying the ultimate sacrifice of His body and blood. We bless You and we thank You for this time in Your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.